This podcast is supported by Understood Explains. As parents, we are often having to figure out things as we go, and that is very true for our children's education. And to help you out, I want to tell you about a podcast called Understood Explains. This season is hosted by teacher and special education expert, Juliana Ortube, and she discusses all the things you'd want to know about individual education plans, or IEPs, what they are, why they're needed, who benefits from them, and what to expect when you have meetings with teachers. I could have really used this podcast when my son had an IEP for speech when he was six. I was overwhelmed trying to understand the process and what everything meant. The episode on Understood Explains, Does My Child Need an IEP?, was the kind of info that would have really helped me get the most out of the educational support of the IEP for my son. And if you need that kind of support, I really recommend this podcast. To listen to Understood Explains, search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood Explains. Welcome to Mom and Mind, where we dive into all aspects of perinatal mental health and wellness related to pregnancy, birth, loss, postpartum, and new parenthood. It's so much more than postpartum depression. We raise the volume on all of these topics in the hopes that someday everyone will have the support and info that they deserve before they need it. Please note this podcast is not a replacement for treatment by a professional or professional training. The Mom and Mind podcast has been a passion project for me, absolutely, for the past three years. It's been an honor to go on this journey with you and have you be a part of the Mom and Mind community. In an effort to keep our podcast strong and growing, I've now set up a Patreon page for the Mom and Mind podcast. What's a Patreon? It's basically crowdfunding, a donation platform where you can help move this podcast forward so we can continue to get these awesome episodes out to you and all of the other moms and families who deserve to know that they are not alone. Contributions can range anywhere from $2 a month up to $25 a month where you can become part of the Mom and Mind Collaborative, where as a professional, we can brainstorm together on how to get all of our voices for perinatal mental health out into the world. Come check it out at patreon.com slash momandmind. We would love to have your support to keep this mission going strong. Welcome to Mom and Mind. I'm your host, Dr. Kat. In today's episode, we are talking with Dr. Venus Mahmoudi, who specializes in trauma and reproductive mental health. But very specifically, she's going to be telling us about perinatal mental health for Muslim women. More specifically, what rates of depression look like in the Muslim community in the U.S., what makes Muslim women particularly vulnerable to perinatal mood and anxiety disorders, and how can we support Muslim women in a culturally competent way. Dr. Mahmoudi completed her PhD in clinical psychology at Palo Alto University in California with an emphasis in women's neuroscience and health through a collaboration with Stanford University. Her clinical training included working with refugees and torture survivors, veterans, and perinatal women in a specialized intensive outpatient program. Her dissertation focused on the perinatal experiences of Muslim women living in the United States, including the protective aspects of Islamic practice during and after pregnancy against depressive symptoms. She completed specialized training through Postpartum Support International and advanced specialized training in grief loss and distress related to infertility at the Seleni Institute in New York. She cares for individuals and couples at the Seleni Institute, which focuses on perinatal mental health, as well as the Khalil Center, which focuses on mental well-being of Muslims. So let's learn more from Dr. Mahmoudi. Welcome, Dr. Mahmoudi. Thank you so much for being with us. 
Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. I am excited as well and really, really happy to be getting some information and education and your perspective as well on perinatal mental health for the Muslim community. I think this is such an important topic that not too many people get to hear about, but should hear about. Absolutely. Yeah, really, really important. So anywhere you feel like would be a good place to start for our kind of learning and education today? Sure. One of the things that, you know, I think is important is that, you know, many, many folks, many clinicians and people in general are familiar with perinatal mood and anxiety disorders among the general population. And it's usually the number that we see in terms of rates of depression and like at clinical levels is around 20%, you know, one in seven kind of that statistic. And one of the things that I've noticed is that these percentages often increase in women of color and that's not any different for Muslim women. When I was doing my dissertation study a couple of years ago, the rate of depression that I found in my sample was about 28% of women experienced you know, anxiety or depression during the perinatal period at a clinical level. Mm. So that's quite high. And I think subclinical levels are above that. So it's a concern that is valid enough in this community where I think we need additional resources and support and help but with any community, with any community of color, I think there's major concerns of stigma and, you know, having adequate sources of support and reaching out to the community to make sure that they know that, you know, these services are available. So I think that's the main issue with this population that we see higher levels of perinatal mood and anxiety disorders. But in terms of support and help and reaching out to therapists, there seems to be a bit of a lag in making sure that those services are available. Right, absolutely. But I'm assuming both just in general, culturally Mm -hmm. informed, but also specifically from a Muslim therapist. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if the kind of numbers of Muslim therapists are also not high enough to meet the demand or the need. Well, fortunately, that is something that's changing. There are more and more Muslim therapists that are interested in perinatal mental health. Yes, there are not quite as many as there's likely a demand for this type of service. You know, I think there's only a handful of therapists that I know that are interested in this area who are Muslim practitioners. But also, you know, for the community of therapists at large to be able to at least expose them to, you know, what the best practices are for this population, I think is also important. You know, I have focused on teaching kind of Muslim mental health issues among various so I went out to PSI a couple of few years ago and did a class, did one of those talks on Muslim mental health and how that impacts the perinatal population. And there's quite a bit of interest in that. And also here in New York, through the Mount Sinai Hospital System, which is one of the largest hospital systems in the city, they actually requested because they were having such a high number of Muslims coming through their hospital system that they requested, you know, what perinatal mood and anxiety disorders looks like within this population and the incorporation of, you know, the cultural and the religious understandings mm-hmm. that come with this population. Because I think those are the most salient things. Like, you know, yeah. how does the cultures and, you know, even though that's like, you know, these are very broad perspectives, right? Like how the culture and how the religion play a role in this population. But it's been nice to be able to kind of go into communities and try to figure out how to help others become culturally competent within this area. Right. I mean, I'm assuming and hoping that the demand continues and 
gets higher as people understand how important that cultural perspective is and the cultural and religious understanding is and how that, mm. you know, impacts everything. So how is it different? What are the particular vulnerabilities or challenges for Muslim women in the perinatal period? Sure. That's a really good question. The first thing that I often kind of try to work through is what is deemed to be like ethnocultural issues and then what comes up with respect to religion. A lot of times the two get conflated. So for example, like country of origin, people from different countries of origin are going to have the religion expressed in different ways. So mm-hmm. specifically Muslim women who practice in one country are not necessarily going to practice in that same way in a different country. Mm-hmm. So I think that that's a very important point because, you know, we kind of in the United States get, you know, our patients are from various countries of origin. They've practiced Islam in very, very different ways. And so what might work for one person isn't necessarily going to be working for somebody else and so on and so forth. I was thinking too, maybe just kind of general population maybe doesn't have an understanding of how far wide reaching the Muslim religion is. And maybe I'm wondering how many assumptions are made that Muslims only come from the Middle East and how, yeah, I'm just interested too in just the lay perspective of that. Sure, of course. I mean, the majority Muslim population countries go from, you know, North Africa, parts of West Africa. So the largest population of Muslims usually comes from like South Asia. And generally, when we see patients, we see patients, you know, predominantly from like South Asia, from like Eastern Asia, and not as many from like the Arab world, although that's what Islam is often associated with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If we look at the like Arab countries, they're often very diverse and there's, you know, very diverse set of religious backgrounds that you often see in like Arab countries. So mm-hmm. there's definitely that difference. Right. Thank you for broadening that. I'm um, just to kind of pull that perspective in as well, because I was thinking when you're talking about the cultural expression, there's such a range of cultural influence and how that plays out with, you know, all of those factors. Absolutely. And even within the religion, there's so much difference. You have, you know, kind of the major two sects of Islam are the Sunni and the Shia. And so each one of those will have their own kind of sets of rules and expectations around, you know, religious obligations, but also in terms of reproductive well-being and what that looks like Mm -hmm. and what the requirements are for, for women, you know, during pregnancy and postpartum. And also, you know, within each of those, there are a myriad of differences and various sects that go underneath the umbrella of those two kind of major sects. Um, Yeah. This podcast is supported by Starglow Media's Mysteries About True Histories. From the creators of the hit top-ranking kids educational podcast in the world, Who Smarted, the Emmy-nominated Nat Geo Disney Plus's Brain Games and Netflix's Brainchild, comes Mysteries About True Histories affectionately known as M-A-T-H, or math, in which kids ages six and up can hear humorous and educational stories that follow two best friends, Max and Molly, while they go on adventures through time, solving puzzles, hidden equations, talking about history, and making learning cool. Episodes transport listeners to moments in history like Pythagoras's ancient Greece, the era of the Aztecs, Sir Isaac Newton's England, and more. When I drive my son to school in the morning, we listen to these episodes that fit perfectly in our commute, with the episodes being about 15 minutes long. And this podcast is right up my son's alley because he loves to solve problems and happens to love math. 
and the types of punny jokes that Max likes to tell. So tune in to Mysteries About True Histories with your kids. You can follow and listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your pods. Hi there, I'm Andrea Owen, self-help author with 19 translations of my books, global keynote speaker, and life coach. My podcast, Make Some Noise, has been serving up self-help in a simple-to-digest way for the last decade. The topics brought in each episode are practical and easy to implement around topics such as working through fears that keep you stuck, different modalities of therapy, managing your negative self-talk, and more. We bring you guest experts, solo episodes, and I even coach listeners on the air around relatable struggles. I also do my best to weave my sense of humor into some heavy topics because let's face it, life can be pretty hard and it's so much better when we can have some fun while walking through our challenges. Whether you're seasoned in personal development or just starting out, Make Some Noise podcast will help you become the best version of yourself, the person you're proud of when you look in the mirror and show up in your life. Simply search Make Some Noise with Andrea Owen wherever you listen to your podcasts. And it, there's often a lot of conflation that happens with what is culturally in terms of like ethnic background, like what expectations are around what a woman might do during pregnancy, what she might do postpartum, mm-hmm. what the expectations are in terms of caring for their child, you know, gender roles, all of that, and versus what is kind of outlined religiously in theology and kind of sacred texts. However, these are conflated often so, so, so much that it can actually lead to feeling some kind of depression or anxiety because it feels like religious obligations are not being met. So if I can give an example, Mm -hmm. one of the things that's outlined in the Quran is that a baby is to be breastfed for two years. This is not a requirement that's written in stone. It's not like you must breastfeed, you know, children until they're two years old. However, that's the interpretation that's often taken. And so a lot of times women will feel so much pressure to try to breastfeed because they think that if they go against this guideline, and essentially that's what it is, it's a guideline, then they feel like they're going against their religion and creates a lot of anxiety and, mm-hmm. and tension. And at the same time, you know, we know breastfeeding in and of itself can be so challenging, so difficult, right. and can bring up a lot of mental health issues. Just the challenge of wanting to fulfill this obligation or this, sure. this yeah. Yeah, as you were saying that, I was also kind of wondering about maybe family perspective or family pressure on also following the guidelines and if that would also be stressful then too. Yes, absolutely. So one of the things I did for my dissertation is ask this kind of open-ended question about what aspects of their kind of the participants' cultural backgrounds might influence you know, their kind of well-being during pregnancy and postpartum Mm -hmm. and looking at both, you know, what are the challenging aspects of their kind of ethnic backgrounds and what are the kind of supportive and helpful things. And often what's helpful was like food, you know, being given these very healthful foods, you know, these Mm -hmm. strong, you know, lots of like ginger and like these warm foods to -hmm. help them throughout the pregnancy and also healing in postpartum. So a lot of warm foods that are very healing. And then when you hear about like the challenges, they were mostly around expectations that, you know, the mother-in-law would come and help. And a lot of times relationships with mothers-in-law are strained. And there's this expectation that, okay, mother-in-law is going to come and, you know, quote unquote help. But that also means that 
this woman who's in the postpartum period has to cook, has to clean, has to also try to take care of baby while she's mm-hmm. trying to do all of this. And, you know, it just kind of takes away that like, okay, this is her healing time mm-hmm. and time for her to kind of get herself to a place where she's both physically and emotionally healing. But that's kind of taken away from her because, you know, there's this other role that becomes dominant in that situation. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. There's so many facets yes, like to cover both the religious and cultural and family mm-hmm. dynamics that play out too. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, one of the things that's pretty common among a lot of collectivist cultures is this like 40 day recuperation period. And I know that it's common amongst, you know, both Mexican culture, Middle Eastern culture, you know, Chinese culture. And it's something that's very common in the Muslim world. And this is definitely something that's not based in religion. It's based more on like countries of origin. Sure. And it's actually a very helpful practice where, you know, the new mother is able to care for her baby and is able to be cared for by, you know, all the women in her family. She's fed, you know, like I mentioned before, like these very healthful foods and healing Mm -hmm. foods. She doesn't have to like cook or clean or, you know, she can, you know, just basically focus on trying to learn to breastfeed trying to take care of herself, trying to take, take care of baby. And research has shown us that it is helpful in managing depression and bringing down you know, rates of depression in this population. However, it also depends on who is providing the support, who uh, yes. is helping. So if it's the mother-in-law, actually the rates of depression tend to increase. Oh, whereas, boy. isn't that something? Yeah. Um, yeah. And however, if it's her own mother, it's actually a very healing experience where she really feels connected to not only like the women in her family, but also connected to the baby. Another aspect of this is that if the new mother is someone who's fairly acculturated and she doesn't really want to be doing, you know, these kind of quote unquote old school techniques, that also can raise distress and anxiety and depression if she's kind of, you know, forced into this kind of practice. So there's a wide range of how the same same practice can be helpful for some and unhelpful for others. Sure, absolutely. Yeah. Are there other religious-based things that might make this period a little more challenging? Yes, one of the things that often comes up is around religious practice. So one of the things that my dissertation study found was that it was incredibly helpful for women to be praying throughout their pregnancy. And because the majority of women don't, you know, have their menstrual cycle, their menstrual periods during their pregnancy, they're able to pray for the full, you know, nine to 10 months without having any kind of interruption. And what tends to be very challenging for a lot of women is that once they give birth, they go through this postnatal bleeding, which can last up to 40 days. And this can be very challenging for a lot of women who use prayer as a main source of coping and connection to God. And so, but I have to also clarify, so there are different types of religious practice that women and men as well can engage in throughout their lives, but there are certain ones where it is required for women and men to enter into a ritual state of purity. And when a woman is on her menstrual period, she's not able to enter that state of ritual purity, which prevents her from engaging in the ritual five daily prayers, as well as like reciting Quran or touching the Quran. This does not mean that she's impure. This does not mean that she is, that God is seeing her as other during that time. It is just that she's unable to enter that state of ritual purity because of the menstrual period. However, there are so many different 
ways of expressing, you know, her religiosity and practicing the religion. But a lot of what happens is that a lot of Muslims see themselves as, you know, a good Muslim is one that prays five times a day. And mm. so if for this extended period of time, you're not able to do this ritual five daily prayer, it can be very jarring and very upsetting. And many women in my dissertation study actually expressed a lot of sadness and distress because they weren't able to express the religiosity in the way that they would have liked. Mm. So that was very difficult for a lot of women. I guess I'm kind of reading between the lines uh, a little bit or maybe making an assumption that like feelings of guilt or maybe even shame, how does that play out emotionally? Yeah, I think there is a bit of guilt and shame. It certainly plays a role in, you know, increasing distress, which can lead to feeling, you know, increased feelings of depression, especially, you know, Mm -hmm. we know with, with, if there's a particular type of coping that works best with managing emotions, Mm -hmm. and you're not able to engage in that coping strategy, it's certainly more challenging for them to try to find other ways. And often what I've done when I work clinically with this population is, okay, you know, I know that you're not able to, you know, engage in the five daily prayers, but are there other ways that you can worship God and you can feel connected? Mm -hmm. Are there other things that you can do? And trying to find other ways to connect with God. The thing is, you know, a lot of the other ways of worshiping haven't been codified as much as the five daily prayers have. And it's something that's very specific to time and you know, what time of day. So, you know, you wake up every morning at a particular time and you pray, and then there's one in the afternoon, one in the late afternoon, and then one right when, you know, the sun goes down and then one in the evening. And, you know, it's something that's required. So it's very easy to do because you know that another prayer time is coming. Whereas the other types of worship might be, you know, just kind of what, what is kind of more of a Western idea of prayers where you just kind of ask God to help you with various things. This is kind of more open-ended and you can kind of, you know, the prayers are very basically, you know, you can choose how you speak to God, what you say, it's really at your discretion or just, you know, kind of contemplation, for example, is another one mm-hmm. where you might look at, you know, a tree and, and just be in awe of like God's creation. So these are ones that a lot of us, especially those of us who were raised in Muslim majority households, you know, parents who are immigrants from Muslim majority countries, you know, we didn't grow up as these being kind of these really dominant and very important types of worship because the five daily prayers were emphasized as being super important, more important than all the other types of worship. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, not being able to pray is like the worst thing in the world. And it just becomes this very challenging thing to reconcile with yourself that, no, it is good enough to engage in contemplation or reflection. It is good enough to just recite some verses that you know from memory. It is good enough to read a book that talks about, you know, God's mercy or whatever it might be that is available to you. Right. And then the downside, like you said before, is that if people aren't remembering or something like that, that they have access to other ways to stay connected, that that Mm -hmm. can contribute to the depression or anxiety. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that this is where a lot of the work, you know, that I'm interested in comes in because we often grow up being told that certain types of worship are better than other types of worship. And it becomes very challenging to convince yourself, you know, for now, this is good enough. For now, this is a way that I can kind of connect with God. Because it's something that, you know, a lot of times we're not used to, because we're used to kind of having things happen in a different way. 
So it requires a lot of support from the Muslim community. It requires a lot of support from scholars and bringing in like Islamic scholars, as well as mental health professionals who are able to say, no, there are so many different ways of worshiping God. It doesn't necessarily have to be in this particular way that you grew up being told is the best way. We all want to do the right thing to keep our bodies healthy in the long run. Enter Ritual, the obsessively researched vitamin for women. Two easy-to-take capsules provide the nine nutrients you need to support a strong foundation for your health. I love taking the Ritual vitamin. It makes me feel really good to see, literally see, that I'm getting all of the nutrients I need to keep myself healthy. I don't know of any other vitamin on the market where you can actually see what you're about to take in. And I like that. The vitamin's transparent and so is the company. You can look online and see exactly what you're taking. What's even better is Ritual is delivered. A subscription is easy to start and easy to snooze. It's only a dollar a day to have all of the essential nutrients your body needs delivered every month, no strings attached. Better health doesn't happen overnight. And right now, Ritual is offering my listeners 10% off your first three months. Fill in the gaps in your diet with Essential for Women, a small step that helps support a healthy foundation for your body. Visit ritual.com slash mom and mind to start Ritual today. That's 10% off during your first three months at ritual.com slash mom and mind. I wonder then too, if there's kind of an added pressure since the woman who's pregnant is carrying a child, then assuming also wanting to raise the child in the faith. And if there's an added pressure to be doing, you know, what she's always done for the child, if that makes sense. Like during pregnancy and postpartum, if there's any particular challenge around, like I have this new child and I want to be doing what I've always done religiously. And if they can't, I don't know. I'm just thinking out loud, wondering how it affects her feelings about being a mother to the child. Sure. I mean, a lot of times there's pressure as a mother in general, because, you know, the first place that a child will learn about their religion is is at home with the mother. I mean, that's a lot of times what is assumed. And that's a lot of times what we're told, you know, growing up that, okay, you know, the household is kind of the mother's domain. Mm -hmm. So those very traditional kind of gender role type of expectations. But again, this is another thing that's rooted in kind of the ethnic culture rather than the religion. And a lot of times, you know, when I'm working with this population, I try to kind of help them learn like, well, this is different. Like the religion doesn't say that you must, you know, teach your child like XYZ by a certain time. Mm -hmm. Yes, there are certain things that we want children to be exposed to as Muslims. We want them to be exposed to Quran. We want them to be exposed to seeing prayer and things like that. And so if a woman derives worth kind of being a mother through, okay, I want my child to see me praying five times a day. I want my child to see me reciting Quran. And I'm at a time of the month where I'm not able to do that. Or I'm, you know, then certainly that's going to bring up some guilt and some feeling that she's not adequate as a mother. However, you know, this is kind of, you know, like I mentioned, this is what a lot of the work is, is trying to figure out how can we help this community understand like, that there's so much diversity in the way that you can worship God. And one of the organizations that I'm working with, it's called the Khalil Center. And, you know, we have various locations around the country. And one of the things that they're trying to incorporate is finding ways to not only bring in like the, you know, psychological information and the theories and everything, but incorporating that with theology and religious thought so that 
you know, we can help treat someone both from the you know psychological perspective, but also having enough Islamic knowledge so that we can kind of challenge some of these expectations of I'm not going to be a good enough mother if I don't, mm. you know, worship That's in this so particular important. way. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah. And what are some other things that you're seeing or found in your research that make this period challenging? Sure. One of the things that often comes up is around gender roles, often households that are traditional culturally, traditional religiously will engage in very traditional gender roles, no surprise. And often what happens is that not only are these new mothers kind of required to take care of this new baby, they'll be required to kind of take care of the household chores and, you know, take care of everything like within the household. Husbands are often going out and working. But this is also, once again, it's rooted in kind of the ethnic cultural kind of framework Um, you know religiously this is not necessarily a requirement there's a lot of help is provided so you know if within the religious theology if a woman would like support and help and if it's within their means she's entitled to receive help through like a housekeeper or you know babysitting or things like that and so this is something that often isn't seen as part of being religion. So often what happens is that when people see kind of these traditional gender roles, they associate it with the religion mm-hmm. and that, oh, you know, Muslims, you know, they engage in these traditional gender roles. However, both through my dissertation study and both through what the, the literature says at large, Muslim women often identify with more egalitarian gender roles. And mm-hmm. a lot of households tend to be more traditional because of the, you know, ethnic cultural kind of systems that have come in place. So it's often problematic because this is how I was raised. This is kind of how things look. But sure. when we look deeper into the religion, it can be very fluid. It can be very egalitarian. And, you know, fathers will engage in helping a lot more than what we kind of assume and what, you know, kind of the stigmas out there based on like, you know, what Muslims tend to look like, which is also another issue, you know, you know, kind of perspectives of Islamophobia and kind of how Muslims are seen out in the world, I think really influence some of these issues that arise. Right. Like the difference between the culture being from a Western perspective, I'll use terms that I've heard Western yeah. perspective people say is that using words like the women are oppressed, mm-hmm. and, but what they're talking about is maybe the culture, but they're, yeah. what you're saying, they're conflating it with the religion. Absolutely. That's exactly right. right. Okay. You know, a lot of these countries are very patriarchal. A lot of these countries put women in these situations that are horrendous. But, you know, when I work with Muslims who follow the religion and, you know, women who are deeply committed to the religion, they don't feel oppressed. They are not oppressed. Mm -hmm. They feel empowered. They feel that their religion gives them the ability to choose whatever lifestyle she would like. Mm -hmm. And also within the context of being a mother, there are so many rights that she has and so much support that she can receive. So I think the issue is when, you know, a lot of the media assumptions are kind of they can really distort what you're seeing in front of you. So even, you know, in the therapeutic setting that if these assumptions come into the session, they will certainly impact, you know, the progress that's going to be made in session. No one told us the truth about parenthood. Why? This is the podcast everyone needed before they had kids because now that those little ones are here, there is a lot to unpack. 
I'm Rachel Shepardota, and I am your host for the podcast, No One Told Us, where we tell the truth about parenting and let you in on all the stuff you really should have known about before having kids. I am the founder of Hey Sleepy Baby, but this podcast is so much more than sleep. We'll be diving into all the topics that you really care about and need to know while you do your best job raising those adorable, tidy humans. Our goal is to just make you feel less alone and less overwhelmed. There are so many things that no one tells us before becoming a parent, and I think that we should really pull back the curtain on becoming a first-time or second-time mom or dad to share the good, the bad, and the ugly. We'll have a little education, a little fun, and a whole lot of heart that goes into each and every episode. So join me and our amazing guests each week to hear us talk about what no one told us. Lynn, this time of year, parenting can be such a fluster clucks. You've come to the right place. I'm Lynn Lyons, and I've been treating anxious families for over 30 years. I'm Lynn's sister-in-law and co-host Robin Hudson. Join us for Fluster Clucks, a podcast for parents who worry. Wait, that's everybody. Yeah, these last few years have felt like one long anxiety attack for so many. Why do you think parents are always surprised that a podcast about anxiety relates to them, even if no one in their house has an anxiety disorder? Well, worry is human. Everyone does it. And anxiety shows up when we face uncertainty. All the parenting tips you've taught me have been essential. I love to break it down into skills we need to manage worry in our families. We've covered so many topics, depression, burnout, meltdowns, perfectionism. Don't forget scary mothers-in-law. Right, but of course that's not my mother-in-law. Because that's my mother. And a listener. As a psychotherapist, I like to teach parents and kids how to respond to everyday moments in healthy ways. Managing anxiety really can be taught. It really can. And I'll even tell you what to say. We talk about serious stuff, but without being too serious. Anxiety wants everything serious. Anxiety doesn't stand a chance when we're laughing, even about the tough stuff. Oh my gosh. I can imagine, sadly, how many scenarios there might be from like a very Western-based perspective of psychotherapy Mm -hmm. and not taking cultural context, religious context into account Mm -hmm. and the therapist having a very Western perspective and trying to apply kind of individualistic cultural perspective on to someone who comes from a collectivist Muslim country and Mm -hmm. religion. Oh gosh. Yeah. Yes, definitely. Sort of scary. It is. And I think, you know, it's important to remember that this is also a very resilient, very well-educated, very devoted group of people. Absolutely. Um, You know, working with Muslims has been so amazing for me. I, you know, throughout my training, I didn't really focus working on Muslims. I've worked for, you know, with refugees and torture survivors for a year that was the extent of you know me working with Muslims. But this past year, I've been focusing predominantly on the Muslim population. I have seen a vast number of perinatal cases Great. as well. And you know, there's this there's this resilience that I think is very beautiful to see, and their willingness to try therapy despite it being so new to the community and allowing themselves to be vulnerable in a space and speaking to a stranger. And I find that to be quite beautiful, and yeah. it's pretty amazing to be a witness to that. Well, that's awesome. That's great. Can you speak more to the resilience and the strengths that you've seen from Muslim women in the perinatal period? Yeah, in particular, what are the strengths? Yes. So essentially, these women, the majority of them come from collectivist cultures. So there is a very strong value on culture and being connected to family, being connected to a community, 
their communities are very generous. The communities are very open-minded in terms of help, support and helping. These communities are fairly new to mental health, but they have begun to embrace mental health services and seeking support for mental health services. So I think that their willingness to try is really important. Religion can be incredibly protective. We have seen this in every tradition, every religious tradition, that religion can be protective against mental health distress and mental health issues. And it's no different in the perinatal population. You know, in my dissertation study, we found, you know, religiosity to be a protective factor in this population. And so definitely, I think their sense of connectedness to God and to something outside of themselves can be incredibly healing. And and religious coping is often something that can help move them through these very challenging experiences. And that's also how Muslim women like to cope. They like to use religious coping to manage their distress and manage their symptoms. And we often will check in about how their prayers are going, you know, what are they doing during their menstrual periods, you know, checking in in terms of like what their feelings are around gender roles. And, you know, these conversations are often ongoing. Mm-hmm. And it's actually fascinating to kind of do a lot of couples therapy within this population because husbands are, you know, want to be involved, dads want to be involved. So I think that, you know, we have to be mindful of our assumptions of this population yeah. because they can be quite amazing to work with. Right. And there are so many assumptions. I mean, I think specifically from like, again, taking a Western perspective, primarily Western perspective, the more you don't know about anything really, about a Mm -hmm. given population, the more assumptions you make. So having even this bit of education for somebody out there who doesn't know, have really any context for this, this is Mm -hmm. really very useful to just broaden our understanding Mm -hmm. um, so that we can come with more compassion. Yeah. Yeah. I'm thinking specifically like for therapists who may have Muslim clients, how can we be supporting them in a more culturally competent way with more humility? Yeah, with more incorporating, like you said, the religion into the therapy. Sure. I think it's important to be mindful of, you know, the major vast differences between, you know, different people from various countries of origin and how they practice. But I think it's also important to have a sense of, you know, what are the basic tenets of Islam? What are the basics among all Muslims? Just so that, you know, you have a sense of what's going on within this group. And then after that, be curious and ask your patients about, you know, what their level of practice is. Even within, you know, a Muslim mental health clinic, I see a wide range of religiosity. You know, some people are are fully covered with hijab and others are not, you know, but they're choosing a Muslim mental health clinic because their religion is a very important part of their identity. Mm -hmm. So if someone, you know, who's coming to you, don't make assumptions, be mindful of, okay, if they're wearing hijab, that doesn't mean that they're praying five times a day. Or if they're not wearing the hijab, they're not covering, that doesn't mean that they're not, you know, very much attuned to their religious identity. So I think approaching it from curiosity, but also, you know, just having a basic sense of like, what does the religion say about worship? What does the religion say about women's dress? And, you know, when a patient walks into your office, you know, asking them like, you know, what the role of religion is in their life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for that. Yeah, of course. 
Thank you so much for all of this. I'm really grateful to you for all of your knowledge and all of the work you put in on your dissertation and the speaking engagements you do. I think everyone should really hear what you have to say. And do you have any resources or our last hopeful messages you'd like to leave us with? Sure. First of all, I just want to extend my thanks to you for having me on. I think, you know, this is an area that I'm very passionate about. And I think anyone who's interested in learning more about Muslims can certainly read this particular book. It's called Counseling Muslims, Handbook of Mental Health Issues and Interventions. It's not specific to the perinatal population, but at least it gives you a sense of, you know, the Muslim population and mental health issues that arise within this population. It's edited by Samira Ahmed and Mona Amr. And also, I think that, you know, the Muslim population is really a special population. For me, I think they're just like any group of, you know, people of color. They're dynamic. They have a wide set of experiences. And there's certainly a lot of trauma within this population as well. So I would just approach them with curiosity and with compassion, just as you would with any other, you know, population, vulnerable population. And, you know, I'm really excited to continue doing this work. So I'm happy to, you know, do more research so that I can, you know, disseminate more of this information for everyone in the future. Yeah, thank you. It's so needed. I appreciate the work that you do and the time that you took out of your day to share with us. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. You having me come on. Thank you so much, Dr. Mahmoudi, for coming on and sharing this information with us. I'm encouraged by your work and the work you're doing to spread information and awareness for Muslim women so that we can learn more and be better supporters and advocate for Muslim women who are dealing with perinatal mental health issues. And for listeners today, please do share this episode. I think the more that we share this information and spread awareness, the better we can all be at supporting moms and families, and specifically Muslim women in the United States and around the world. Please find this episode and all of our episodes at momandmind.com. That's it for today. Until next time. Thank you so much for joining us today. Please share this podcast. Together we can support moms and families so that no one has to deal with this alone. Come connect with us at momandmind.com. I'm Margaret. And I'm Amy. And together we host the podcast, What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood. Margaret, I would say you're sort of a where are my keys kind of mom. Correct. Sometimes a where are my kids kind of mom. (laughs) Well, you're Amy more of a we were supposed to leave 35 seconds ago, mom. I mean, touche. In each episode of What Fresh Hell, we come at a topic from our usually completely opposite perspectives. I bring the research. And I bring kind of the gimlet eye. Like, is that research really going to work, people? And almost 10 million downloads later, we're still laughing. We also talk to experts in the parenting field, plus parents with stories we can all learn from. We make each other laugh, we challenge each other's assumptions, and we have what we think is the best parenting community on the internet. Check out What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood wherever you listen to podcasts.